Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come and study your word. We ask you to guide and lead in, in what we see. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Isaiah 46, we're continuing the prophecies about the various countries around Israel. And in verse 1, Bell bowed down, Nebel stooped. Their idols were upon their, their beasts, and upon the cattle your carriages were laden heavy laden and they are burdened to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together, they could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. And even to your old age I am he, and even to whore hairs will I carry you. I have made and I hear and I bear will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. So we're going to stop there for just a moment because this is God making his declaration about idolatry. Bel is one of the chief gods of that area. He was the chief god of, uh, of uh, that area. And Nebal is the god of learning. So he's saying, okay, Bel, the chief god, and Nebal are stooped their idols were put upon beasts and upon cattle, and your carriages are heavy laden. They are a burden to, be, to the weary beast. In other words, the idols have been loaded onto car, uh, carts and being carried away. <laughs> they, did, they weren't able to deliver their people. All right? And God's making this point. He says they stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves have gone into captivity. All right? So... Whoever it is has conquered these people. They've, they've taken them. It's probably Babylon uh, at this point in time, or the idols of Babylon. So it's Assyria, that's, uh, or the Medo-Persian Empire, excuse me, that's going to conquer them. Uh, and so these, God is saying, those idols couldn't deliver their people. And you know we have a hard time understanding this mentality, but in that day and age, it was very much understood that there were lots of gods. There was no great gods. And you would just hope that your God was stronger than the God that you were fighting on the day that you were fighting them. Because the next time you turned around, their God might be stronger than your God. And they just did not have this concept that we have of a God that is God. All right? The Egyptians had hundreds of gods. Then when God went in and delivered the Israelites, he, the ten plagues were against all the various gods, most of them two or three gods at a time. So he was... He defeated 30, 30 or so of their gods uh, to show that he was God. And we read in, in Judges, where they're conquer, uh, Joshua, where they're conquering the land, there's a, there's a tribe that says, well, the, their God beat the God of the valley, but we've got the God of the mountain. They're not going to defeat us. And this was the mentality that people had, you know, that each of the gods were somehow able to beat each other up and, and win and, and defend their people or not defend their people, depending on whatever criteria that, it, that they were balancing on. And God's saying, Bel, the great god of Babylon, is being carried away in a cart. And Nebel, the god of learning, is being carried away as well. <laughs> so... He's making this point, and then in verse 3 it says, Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, and are, which are carried from the womb, in other words, that have been from birth, his. All right? 
And then he says, and even to your old age, I am he, I am God, and even to hoar hairs, which means gray. All right? The hoar frost is a heavy, thick frost on the ground, and so he's saying the, the, gray, the gray haired. So when you read that in the old English, he's talking about gray hair. He says, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry you and will deliver you. What's he doing? He's drawing a very strong constant, uh, c contrast. Bel and Nebor, Nebo couldn't help their people, but I am your deliverance. And he's going to be sending them into captivity, which is going to shake them up. They're going to go into captivity. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed completely, completely flattened and torn apart. They're going into captivity. But the good news, God told them how long they were going to be in captivity for. And does anybody remember how long they were in captivity for? 70. 70 years. One, one year for every uh, jubilee that they missed where they were supposed to rest the land. So God put them in, into captivity uh, so that the land would get its rest. They missed seven jubilees, so he says, fine, you missed seven jubilees, now you're going to go into captivity for the 70 years that the land's going to rest. And he told them that, and that told them that was why. And remember a couple chapters ago, they even told him that Cyrus would be the one who releases them. You know, 70 years, be, you know, and this is being for, for, uh, forecast just shy of 200 years before that. God's saying, Babylon's going to be captive, and then Babylon's going to fall, and the idols are going to be carried away. And this is something that would oftentimes happen uh, in battle. Oftentimes these nations would carry an idol of their god into battle, because their god into battle to, to have victory. And if they lost, that idol was carried into the temple of the gods of the victor. And remember when Israel went to battle and they took the Ark of the Covenant out just before they, the people asked for, uh, before Eli died and his sons were so evil and they went out, they lost the battle and the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and where did they put it? In the temple of Dagon. And they found Dagon bowed down in front of the uh, Ark of the Covenant in the morning and put him back up and the next morning his, his arms were off and his head was off. And then the Ark of the Covenant started its multiple seven-day visit, uh, seven-city tour <laughs> before it was sent back because everywhere it went, disease followed. Uh, but this happened all the time. People would put the gods that, were, that had lost in the temples. And this is what God says, I'm going to carry you. you know, I'm not going to be carried, is what he's saying. I am not something that's going to be put on a cart. I am not somebody that's going to be defeated. I will carry you. I will deliver you. And this is a very kind of a pretty picture that he's saying. These other gods can't deliver. And he said this over and over. And I don't really understand why Israel had so much trouble believing God in, over those years. You know, unfortunately, though, we tend to do the same thing ourselves. But, you know, it's, you know they bowed down in front of idols. I mean, there were, there, theirs wasn't even, you know, hard idol. You know, we, we kind of say, well, anything that's lifted up above God is an idol. So we kind of have televisions and sports and, and things lifted up. But we don't really think of those as idols. These guys literally bowed down in front of idols knowing what they were doing. 
Not just finding themselves bowed down before idols. Yeah, well, we do the same thing when we bow down to work or television or entertainment or sports, but we don't actually literally bow down and worship them the way they were. They would literally go to those temples, go to those places and worship these idols. And I just don't understand that. They had God. They knew what they were supposed to do. But by the same token, how many times did the word of God get lost? You know, we see it all through scripture, you know, that all of a sudden they're cleaning the temple out and they find the law. And then they read the law and they go, oh my goodness, we're violating everything in the law and follow God for, for a generation and then fall away again, lose the word of God. But, you know, it's really sad because even our country's done that same thing. We started out on a good basis, moral basis, following God and having his word. The first, first Continental Congress prints Bibles and gives them to all the people so that people will have Bibles. People are following God. And 200-some years later, we can't even mention God in the public place hardly without drawing the ire of everybody. You know, can't wish people a Merry Christmas. Can't, you know, can't say God bless you. You know, can't, can't lift up God, and we've fallen so far. And what has basically happened? People have forgotten the word of God. So we end up in this place where God says, I am going to be victorious. And it's kind of funny because when you read through the scriptures, sometimes when, the, when, these, when Israel went into captivity, these countries and nations that conquered them, you know, rejoiced there we we beat their god you know we're we're strong our gods are stronger than their god and they're going no we god promised us we're coming back israel is an amazing nation because god has protected them their people have maintained their relationship with god somewhat but they 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 still remember you know even the most secular jew practices the passover you know now they treat it differently and they treat it more like most americans treat christmas but they still remember the stories. They still remember the events. And there's a lot of symbolism in their celebration that is God-ordained. Much, not like our Christmas celebration that has pulled in every pagan practice and said, okay, we're going we're gonna to attach good meaning to it. Theirs was God gave them meaning. Now, there's some of them times so they forgot that meaning, but they still have everything in there. And so it's an amazing thing. God says, I'm going to deliver... I am going to lift you up. I'm going to bear you. I'm going to carry you. These are all words of somebody who cares for his people. And I, and I love it. You know, it says, you know, I, I bore you. I'm going to carry you. I made you and I will bear you. And then it says, just in case you didn't get that, I will carry you and deliver you. You know, in verse four. So he, he, he repeats himself. Just in case you weren't listening, people. <laughs> yeah. And I love this about God and how much he is willing to repeat himself. He knows that we as human beings are dense. You know, we're very dense. We, we don't understand. We can't remember from, from moment to moment. And God says, fine, you can't remember. I'll just keep repeating myself until you do remember. And then he tells us to remember. <laughs> over and over again. And it's been said that we remember the things we're supposed to forget and forget the things we're supposed to remember. And this is what we do as Christians. The things that God tells us to remember, we tend to forget and we keep 
forgetting and remembering the things that we're not supposed to remember, like our sins and the evil and the bad that people do. And we forget to forgive and be kind and, and accept who God says we are. So this is, this is part of what we're looking at. And God says, I am going to carry you. And I love that God carries us. He bears us up. And he will lift us up on wings of eagles, he tells us in another part of Isaiah, that he's going to lift us up. Not just, not just pick us up off the ground, but bear us high above everything. The wings of eagles. Eagles fly above all that goes on. And they just kind of soar over everything and look down upon it. And God says, I'm going to lift you up to a place where you can look down on all the problems if we just trust him. Now that's not the easiest thing in the world for us to do at times. Just trust him. Just believe. Just accept. Just trust. And you know, I understand this. I hear it all the time. But how? How do I do that? Well, the only thing I can tell people is you just do it. You know, and I've learned over the years that I get done, I get to the end of things, I, I get to the place where I trust God, and then I'm kicking myself that it took me so long to get there. You know, when I surrender to God, when I trust God, and all of a sudden I get to the end, I'm going, that was so easy. Why did I make it so difficult to do? And people get mad at me when I tell them, just, just do it, but it is the only answer I can give them. When you do trust him, when you do surrender to him, you'll realize that it was very easy to do. You just did it. But we tend to make it difficult on ourselves. Our walk with God, we try to make it so difficult. God, how can I do this? I'm a sinful being. Let him crucify your flesh and let him live through you. Let him live through you. Have my mind changed by the reading of the word. And the more I meditate on his word, the more I get to know him, the more I gaze on him, the more I become like him. And, you know, they, they say that you become like what you hang out with. And I want to be known as somebody that hangs out with God and become like God. Now, we don't do it perfectly. Hopefully we do it better every, every year and every decade. But, you know, it is something that we have to start doing. God, I just want to get to know you. And the more I get to know him, as he bears me up and carries me, the more I will become like him. We will never be perfect. We will never be God. We will never be exactly like him. But our goal is to be more and more like him. And how do we do that? Gaze upon him. Let him crucify the flesh. Let him, let him take over more and more of ourselves. And, it, you know, it's a wonderful experience, you know. And I've heard, I hear pastors on the radio all the time, to, you know, you got to do these things. you got to do these things. you got to do these things. And you know what? I agree to a, to a level. We do. But... God has to be our motivation behind it. I am not striving to be good. I am asking God, crucify me and make me good, God, because I can't do it. And even when I try to do it, it's usually tinged with bad, bad motives. I got to be good so that God, so I completely, you know, do what God wants me to do. I've already tinged any good that I do because I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. You know, and so we need to be careful with all of this and just let God be God. And this is so much important for us to understand. God is God and we're not. And we as humans have trouble with that not being God part. 
If I'm not happy, I'm going to make sure that people know. If I'm not happy, I'm going to try to do everything I can to make myself happy. But the problem is God never said that we're going to be happy. Well, that's the other problem, too. When I strive for the things that I think are going to make me happy, I usually end up more miserable than I started out. And I find out that what I thought was going to make me happy isn't going to make me happy anyway. Uh, it says blessed, but... <laughs> the, new, the new versions tr translate blessed as happy. And it's not. And it's not. I think happy's in once or two, one, one or two places. No. Huh? Well, the word happy exists in those languages, but that is not what God says we're to be. We're to be content, we're to have joy, we're to have peace, we're to be dependent upon him, we're to be hidden in him. But, and it doesn't mean that we'll never be happy, but happy actually has the prefix of happenstance. When are we as humans happy? When things are going our way as far as we think they should be going. Good things are happening to me, so I am happy. And that is not what God is telling us to do. He says, depend on me, and I am your strength. I, am the, I have good things planned for you. And he gives, says, we'll have joy. We'll have peace and contentment. Joy is much deeper than happiness. I mean, bad things can be happening to me, and I can still have joy in my heart. Because that is a contentment with God that's involved. It is. It's very superficial. And God is never, but we hear it all the time, especially in Western Christianity. You've got to be happy. God wants you to be happy. You know, and it's like, show me any verse in the Bible where it says God wants me to be happy. In pursuit of happiness, yeah. Pursuit of happiness takes us everywhere except into righteousness, usually. So we, we see this problem out there, and we need to be focused on God. He wants to carry us. He wants to be our support. And the more we lean on him, the better off we are. And, you know, people will go, and I used to love it. People go, well, you're just using God as a crutch. I go, absolutely. Absolutely. And then I usually go, and what's your crutch? Well, I don't have one. Well, you seem to be working 80 hours a week. That must be your, work must be your crutch. Well, you know, and, and, you know, everybody has a crutch that they're leaning on. Everybody. It might be work. It might be entertainment. It might be family. It might be any number of things. It might be money, fame, fortune, whatever it is. They've got a crutch that they're leaning on. And God is going to knock their crutches out from, uh, out from them to get their attention. And so we just need, you know, I, I love telling people, you know, agreeing with people. It blows their mind, you know, when I can agree. Well, yep, I agree. God, God's a crutch. I have no problem with that. You know, well, you're just trying to brainwash your kids. Absolutely. I want to brainwash them into following God. I have no problem with that. You want to brainwash them against God? I'm going to brainwash them for God. Plain and simple. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing when you can agree with the, you know, when you can. There's not everything you can agree with, but... When you can, it's fun, it's fun to agree with them. It blows their minds. Uh, so we look at this in verse 5. It says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal? And compare me that we may be like. They lavish gold out of the bag. They weigh silver in the balance. They hire a goldsmith. And he makes a god. They fall down. Yea, they worship. 
They bear him upon their shoulder, they carry him, they set him up in his place, and he stands. From his place shall he not be removed, yea, one shall cry unto him, yet can he not answer, nor save him out of his trouble. <laughs> so this is, you know, I think uh, Isaiah was having a blast writing these little statements. In the previous chapter, he was talking about how you cut down a tree and you take half of it and make your fire to cook your meal. You take half of it to make a God and then you bow down and say, this is my God. Here he's doing the same, here he's doing the same thing. Who is God like? What can we compare him to? A lot of people tell me, you know, have told me over the years, well, this is my picture of God. I have never tried to have a picture of God because God tells me we can't even fathom what he looks like or what he is or, or anything about him. There's nothing to compare him to because he is above everything and anything. There is nothing to compare him to. And then he says, they lavish out gold out of the bag they, they, and they weigh silver. So they, they're taking their riches, giving them to a goldsmith and saying, hey, make me a god. I read these kind of things, and that just makes me mind-boggled when I think of this. Give a, give a woodcarver a tree and say, make me a god. Give him some gold and silver and say, make me a god. You know, at least in Aaron's case, he, said, uh, he told Moses he threw the gold into the fire and out, out, and out popped a, out popped a uh, calf. You know, I don't think Moses believed him for a moment. <laughs> But at least he was kind of being, you know, this thing just, I threw the gold in the fire and, and look what just jumped out of the fire. No, it was just a supernatural thing. Yeah, it was a supernatural. This God just jumped out of the fire, Moses. You know, but at least that was more, yeah. <laughs> more along the lines of what you would expect. But Isaiah has this big play with people. You, you, you're giving these guys money and you're saying, make me a God. And then you bow down to this thing that you created. Yeah, yeah, and then, yeah, and then you you pick him up and put him on your shoulders or your cart, and you carry him where you want. You then you nail him down into place, and he stays there. Yeah, can't can't get where you wanted him. Doesn't have any ears to hear. Doesn't have a mouth to speak. Doesn't have any arms to move. Doesn't have any legs to move. And then you pray, save me. Yeah, it. It's mind-boggling. Now, the world uses the same accusation to us as Christians. You guys are following this invisible God that you can't see. But you know, in my lifetime, I've seen God move so many times that I know that he's real. It's not even a question in my mind that God is real and delivers and, makes and moves. Even though I can't see him, that doesn't matter. He has proven over and over again to be God. He has provided when I needed provision. He has he is protected when I needed protected. He is healed. He has done all these things, and I know that he's real. These gods don't do anything. They just stand there. Where you nailed them in place. After you had them created in the first place. And then you sit there and you pray to these things that you created. But you know, this is unfortunate that even in our day, we're having people create their own gods all the time. Even for many Christians, many Christians worship a God of their own creation, unfortunately. I'm not saying they're saved or not saved. I mean, all they have to do is accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but then they oftentimes will make up their own God. Well, you know, God's a God of love. 
Well, yes, he is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice and mercy and righteousness and holiness. What part of God do you not want? Well, I don't want that righteousness part. I don't want that justice part. Well, you know what? I thank God that he's a God of justice because he is not going to allow people to harm his children because he's a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness. He's always going to do what's right. You know, I love that about God. He is always going to do what's right from his perspective, not from my perspective. You know, what is right in my own eyes or our own eyes? Whatever's good for me. Whatever's good for me is right. That's the selfishness that we have in our hearts. And it changes depending on where I'm at and, and how I feel. You know, or what I think I see. You know, well, God, I think this is the right thing to happen to me. God says, you don't know what's going to happen 10 years from now. When 10 years from now, you'll realize that what we did here was the right thing to do. Or 100 years. Or thousands of years. The disciples set the foundation for the, for the Christianity thousands of years ago, and they did what God asked them to do and set things up. You know, were they, were they realizing that they were going to be setting the stage for thousands of years? I don't think so. I personally have argued with people because I don't believe that Paul realized that he was writing scripture when he wrote his letters to the churches. I think he was just answering the problems of his church and, and participating and saying, this is, this is what you need to know. And God says, yep, you wrote exactly what I wanted you to write, scripture. Because when do we have the greatest impact on people's lives is usually when we don't feel like we're doing anything. You know, we minister to somebody and somebody remembers it for the, for the rest of their life. And for us, it was just, we may not even remember the incident at all. Just, it was just an incident. When I went to the memorial up in California, they had another pastor helping out with it. And he goes, when they first asked him to do the memorial, he couldn't even remember who she was. Okay, he had to be reminded, and once they gave him the reminders, he goes, oh, yes, I remember, I remember. He took, he, they came up to his office unannounced, unscheduled, and he has a busy practice, you know, busy counseling practice that he was doing, and he made time for him, and they remembered that, and he had great impact on her life and the family's life just because he was doing what God, just being who God said to be, you know. He, you know, remember, the more they reminded him, the more he remembered her and all of that. But he made a big impact on them, and he barely remembered it. How many times, in a, and I think about this, if we thought about the people who have made an impact in our life over the years, and we went to them, they may not be even aware that they made that impact. Because they were just being themselves. They were following God. They were doing God's work. And God used it in a mightier way than we ever ever thought that we were being used. And we're just kind of going about doing our business. And I know that's happened to me many times. People go, wow, that really blessed me. And I'm thinking, what? What did I say that blessed you so much? You know, and, or you did this, and I was really you know, excited. I'm going, okay, I don't have a clue what you're talking about, but okay, I accept it. I know that's true for all of us, though. We are touching people often that we have no clue that we're touching just when we're following God and, and walking our daily life because we are an example to somebody somewhere because people are looking and saying, wow, that person had peace during that activity. 
they didn't tear that person's head off. If, they, if that person had done that to me, I'd have torn their head off and buried the body just to be, just to be happy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm told all the time, why are you happy all the time? And I don't feel like I'm happy all the time, but you know, apparently to people, I'm happy all the time. And I'm going, I don't know, God's in, my, you know, God's in my life, he's in control, there's nothing to be upset about. You know, so, but the key is on this though, we bless people without ever being aware that we're blessing them. And those are the greatest, those are the greatest gifts we're gonna have. Those are when we get to heaven and somebody goes, I watched you or I'm here because of you. I'm here because you didn't, you know, you said or didn't do something or I grew because you did or <laughs> didn't do whatever it might be. And people are gonna look, you know, come to us and say thank you. But we don't, we never know who we're reaching and, and how we're reaching them is the main point. It's just living our life with God. And he delivers. I mean, when I try to do things, I'm gonna mess it up. But if I just let God do this, and I've been told many times, you know, that somebody's learned a lot just from a few words that I've said, and I'm going, what did I say that was so, so pr profound? But, you know, the great news is listening to my kids now. Because they're going out working in Bible studies and with Bible studies, and people are looking at you, where did you learn all that stuff? Because the kids didn't think they were learning all that much either. Because it was just something we lived. It was our life that we lived out, and now they're feeding back what they had learned all their life, and to them it's just normal. It's just the normal way of thinking. It's the normal way of acting. And, they're able, and people are listening and going, wow, that's, that's an amazing thing. Yeah. To them it's normal and they're looking to advance beyond that. So he says here that they will not answer, they will not save. Remember this and show yourselves, men. Bring it to mind, O you transgressors. So remember. Remember these are just idols. And again, God keeps telling us, remember. Why did he give the Passover to the people with a huge festival involved on it? So they would remember the deliverance from captivity. That they would remember what God, how strong God was. You know, why did Jesus come in a humble format so that he could come and die for us? Why did he institute the Last Supper with us so that we'd remember? He said, this do in remembrance of me. So when we practice the, the Last Supper, communion, we take the bread knowing that it's his body and how he suffered. We take, the, we take the grape juice knowing that he shed his blood and remember. We remember the horrors of the crucifixion. And this is so important for us. And you know, so many Christians live as if their salvation costs nothing. Well, yeah, Jesus died for me, big deal. Oh, it was a huge deal. The fact that he even did it was a huge deal. And the fact that he took the worst death that is imaginable by mankind upon him is an even bigger deal. There has never been any torture that leads to death that is worse than the cross. And the more you study about it, the more you understand it was horrendous. You know, there's nothing, nothing like it. Being put on the rack is about as close as you can get. But it had so much pain involved in it and torture. And Jesus died so quickly because he took the sins of the world upon him and he had the beating on top of it. But the average crucifixion took a week or two to die. 
and they hung on a cross that whole time, usually not nailed, but you just finally got to where you couldn't hold yourself up and you just, you ended up dying. Jesus died so fast, that's why Pilate goes, he's dead already? Can't be dead already. It's a, he only got hung on the cross three hours ago. And he was dead. Which he had to have been thinking, you guys did something wrong. You know, nobody dies that quick from a, from, from a, from a crucifixion. What did you do wrong? Yeah, they almost beat him to death. Well, they did. They almost beat him to death. But his real death, because you remember, until Jesus became sin on the cross, he could not die anyway because the wages of, de- of sin is death. He had no sin. Have you ever wondered about this? You know, how much of a blessing death is? You know, when you're in extreme pain, if there was no death, it would be terrible. But Jesus became sin. And think about this. He took all the sin of the entire world from the beginning of Adam and Eve to the point of the destruction of the world at the end of the millennial kingdom upon himself. We have trouble sometimes when we really start understanding the awfulness of our own sin. Now multiply that by trillions. And all different kinds of sins. And this is from somebody who had never had sin, whose sin absolutely repulses. God has a different attitude towards sin than we do. We kind of think of sin as kind of light, light stuff. Well, well, yeah, I sinned. You know, not the end of the world. God is repulsed by the sin. Every once in a while, he allows us to see our sin the way he sees it for at least a short moment and not even as bad as he sees it. We just get a little convicted, a little repulsed by it maybe, but it really almost to the point if he could, if he could it makes him want to get sick. Now that's how awful it is to him and we don't get that way about our sin. We may think, oh, it was really bad, it wasn't, you know, but do we really get to the place where we feel physically sick because of the sin that we, co- that we have committed or see? You know, maybe once in a great while, but it's rare. God is totally repulsed by it. He says, and as Isaiah later on, he's going to tell us that our sin is like filthy rags. And the rags he's talking about, medical waste rags that are full of poisons and pus and blood. And if you've ever seen anything like that, I worked in the hospital operating room and I got to clean up the operating suite. And those weren't, those weren't you know, putrid rags. Those were just bloody and sometimes would have, would, would have the pus and everything on them because of it. they were working on somebody who was really sick. But that's how he sees our sin. Totally revolting. We need to really pray, God, help me understand that sin is that bad. And Jesus walked around among men as God, perfect, watching all that sin going on around him. And I don't know how he could have handled it for 34 years of walking on this world. Because I sometimes have problems. God has worked things out of my life, and I catch a TV show or something that just really just irritates me to no end because of how bad it is. And I get that way with some of the shows that are supposed to be good shows anymore. And I think Jesus walked among men for 34 years. 
and didn't want to destroy the world because of what he saw. As a repulse to this, it had to make him. He still loved the world and still reached out to them. He was able to separate the people from the sin. Now, he did have a little trouble with the Pharisees and the scribes, calling them whitewashed sepulchers, you, you brood of vipers. You know, he had a little trouble with them. But he didn't go so far as destroying them, which he could have. They deserved it. So did everybody else around him. But, you know, is that our attitude towards sin? Do we really hate sin? Usually not. Usually not in most cases. We tolerate it. We might be irritated by it once in a while. We're captivated by it often. Otherwise, most of these TV shows would not be on, on TV if people weren't captivated by sin. You know, what is our attitude? Do we agree with God? You know, and that's an interesting, interesting thing. Do we remember? Verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient times of th times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executes my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass, I have purposed it, I will also do it. So here God is talking about his power. He says, first off, remember. Remember the past. And the things he's telling us to remember are not the sins that we've committed and the bad things, but remember God's work. He wants us to always remember what he has done. And this is why it's important. I talk about tracking the things that God has done for us. Write them down in a book somewhere. God blessed me here. God blessed me here. Dr. Jeremiah says that he journals so that he can remember the things that happen each day. He writes a couple paragraphs about what happens each day. So he'll go back a few years later and say, you know, wow, okay, God, you did do this. You did do this. It is important for us to remember how God works. We go to the scriptures and we see how God worked in the past. But the problem that we as human beings have when we look at the Bible, well, yeah, God, that's what you did 2,000 years ago. That's what you did 4,000 years ago. But what are you doing for me? Which is why I encourage us to be reading biographies. But we can still have the point, well, God, that's what you did for them. You know, that was 100 years ago or 50 years ago or 500 years ago. Hey, where they were really good. You know, they deserved it. Well, if you read the biographies, you know they don't deserve it because you read how bad they were before they started. And almost all of them had that, I was really terrible, and then I finally turned around. But, but, you know, what really can impress us when we see God working in people that we know and when we start looking back and saying, God, yes, I am miserable right now. Everything seems to be going wrong. But, you know, God, last year you, you did that blessing for me. Ten years ago you did that blessing for me. You know, five years ago, you gave, me, you gave me the car that I needed or you gave me the job I needed. You know, we need to be able to look back and say, God has worked in my life. And that's important. That is where our testimony becomes real. That is when I can share with people, God loves me and this is what he's done for me. He did this, he did this, he did this. And they go, well, you were a lucky person. I go, no, nobody's that lucky. God has been in my life. 
God is working on my life. They can't argue with it. It's my story. I can, they can argue with me if I tell them somebody else's story. Well, you just didn't know all the facts. Well, you're, you're probably right. But this is my story, and you can't argue with me. You may not agree with me. You may not agree with my analysis of it. But this is my story. And I'm going to tell you my story, which is why we need our own story when we're witnessing to people. What has God done? When, when I talk to people and they look at me, well, you ge generally seem happy. That's because God is in me and he's keeping me and he's in control. Well, I don't know if I can, you know, they may not agree with me, but by the same token, they can't disagree with me. I'm telling them why I'm happy. I'm telling them why I have joy. I'm telling them why I'm singing. I'm telling them why things are going well. It's because God, they may not believe it, but they can't argue with me because I know why. I know why I'm content. I know why I have joy. I know why I sing. Because I know God, and I know that he's delivered me. So they can't argue with that. And we need to be able to look at this and say, God, this is what you've done. This is what you've done. This is what you've done. And I highly recommend that you write them down someplace. In a book, in a journal, in a file, in a computer, whatever, you, whatever, gets you, you know, whatever makes you happy and makes you fine. That way you can go back and say, this, 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 and this. You know, I love, when I got saved, God changed me. In, in a big way. He took away a temper that was going to get me killed or thrown into prison. I would have been in prison because I'd, I'd, I'd either gotten killed or killed somebody with my temper. And I know it because it was that bad. You know, and God took that away. He has done so many great things. He has provided me with vehicles in the past. He has always given me places to live. He's always given me good jobs. He's always done everything for me. And I'm going, thank you. And I can look and say, here, 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 and here. And I challenge us all that are listening to this message that write down the things that God has done because there's going to be that time when you're depressed and can't see the light at the end of the tunnel because everything Satan's attacking with full force and you need to be able to pull up something that says God has worked in my life in the past. Because we as humans get into this problem of what have you done for me lately? Well, you know, God, you haven't done anything for me for the last five minutes. I'm, I'm kind of depressed. You know, usually you know, five minutes. You know, usually we can go days without, without it. But it is that can be that bad. God, I, you haven't done anything lately. What's what's wrong? Well, it's probably me, and probably my sin in my life. But I need to be able to look back and say, God, what are you? What God has has done these things. And then he says he declares the end from the beginning, the ancient times of things that are not yet done and he says my counsel will stand I will do all my pleasure God says I am going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens and that's the wonderful thing about this book this book here has so much prophecy even still yet to come so much of it that's already fulfilled that was told before it happened the book of Daniel just blew, blows people's minds away. They were so sure that that book had to have been written after, you know, after the Greeks, after, you know, after the Roman Empire started, and to find it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, long, you know, dated long before any of these nations came to power, blew their minds. How can somebody give that accurate a description of the future? Well, because God gave him a prophecy. How could, how could the birth of Jesus, the place, the time, the events of Jesus' birth be so 
accurately produced because God says, they're mine. And then he goes on to say even further that he's the only one that can say this. My counsel shall stand. I will, what I have purpose to do, I will do all my pleasure. God does what he wants. Now the good thing for us is that God is good. And that God is holy and righteous. So that all that he desires is good. Because can you imagine the, the statement that we have out there is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. If God had anything evil in him, he has absolute power. He could be the most corrupt, vicious entity that has ever existed and yet his love and his righteousness and his holiness keeps him good. And because he has all that power, he lavishes it upon us you know, who don't deserve it. And he says, he, his, counsel, he, his counsel will stand, I will do my pleasure, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that ex executes my counsel from a far country. I have spoken it. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. When God decides to do something, he will do it. It will come across. It will happen. He decided that, the, that Saul of Tarsus was going to be his, his missionary to the Gentiles. And Saul became the missionary to the Gentiles. Did Saul decide to do it? Technically, yes. But he was knocked off his horse, blinded, and spoken to by God directly. Uh, you know, how many people are going to tell, no, tell God no when he goes to that extreme to get hold of you? Uh, theoretically, Paul could have said no and been blind for the rest of his life. But no sane person in Saul's position, you know, would have said no. Yeah, he definitely wouldn't be reading about him in the Bible. You know, you see Joshua getting ready to come into the promised land. He's looking over everything. He's looking over the battle, and God shows up. And his first question is, whose side are you on? Nobody's. Nobody's side. Are you on my side? Be strong and be of good courage. That's a little bit of paraphrased in there, but basically says... Um, he did say, I'm not on anybody's side, and then basically saying, are you on my side as you follow those verses? You know, Joshua, are you on my side? I'm not, I'm not on anybody's side. And this is something we've got to get out of our mind. God is not on our side. We need to be on his side. Always. Uh, I can't remember which great person that was being talked to in history in America, but they said, well, God's on our side, and the person said, well, I hope he never switches sides. <laughs> All right? Uh, but, you know, it is important for us. God is not on our side. We need to be on his side, whatever that means. Whatever that means to be on his side. Sometimes being on God's side is not fun. We may be called on to be martyrs. We may be called on to be Job for a while and go through a lot of suffering so that God can reveal his glory through us. Whose side are we on? It needs to be God's side. 
because he is not on our side, we're on his side. And we've got to make sure we understand that. And it says, he has spoke it, it will come to pass. The good news for us, if God says it, it is true. How do I know whether it's true? I compare everything to the word of God. I have spent years listening to people to say, God told me, God said, and I ask one simple question when it doesn't seem scriptural and doesn't seem right, I'll ask them what verses back that up. Well, God spoke to me. Yeah. And it's like, that's supposed to stop me from questioning them, but it's not going to stop me from questioning them. If it doesn't match up to the scripture, I'm going to say, you're not listening to the right God. It has to always match up to the word of God. If anything that we think we're being told by God does not match up to the word of God, we didn't hear right. We didn't hear the right words. If it's contrary to scripture, it is not from God. We may have heard something, we're just listening to the wrong voice because it's got to match up. And I've had this conversation so many times over the years. Well, you know, I'm, I think I'm really, I, I love this person. God told me I can marry them even though they're not a Christian. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. Doesn't match the scripture. You're not listening to the right voice. Well, I think this is a really good thing. You know, I know it's not the right thing to do, but wrong, wrong. You know, if it doesn't match up to Scripture, it's the wrong voice you're listening to. And it's very important to understand because God will bring his purposes to fulfilling. Even if it makes absolutely no sense to us, it doesn't have to make sense to me. God is God. God's thoughts are so much higher than my thoughts that I'll, I may never understand what he's trying to accomplish. All I need to do is trust. When God says you're to stay faithful in your marriage and I don't feel love for that person and God says you made a commitment, stay faithful. <laughs> it actually doesn't. It actually doesn't. Now, the wife is to love her husband and the husband or is to respect her husband and the husband is to, re, to love his wife. But that's the only place where it really tells us that. And love in that case is an action. It's not even a feeling. And this is what true love is. Love is a choice and an action. It's not a feeling. Infatuation is a feeling. Too many people get married on infatuation, calling it love, and then a couple years later say, well, we're getting divorced because I never loved them. You're right, you never loved them, but now, now you should be stuck. You made, your, you made your bed, now lay in it because God says no. Unfortunately, our government says yes to any reason. And so we have a corrupted government in many ways from the scripture, and yet we have to hold on as Christians. We have to hold on. The sad thing is that there's so many Christians that are getting divorced. There's so many Christians that are living like the devil and tearing up the testimony of God because they won't live the way God says to live because they don't know the word of God. You know, and I'm not going to say they're not Christians. They're just, if they are Christians, they're living bad. The thing that surprises me most is how many Christians have never read the word of God all the way through. You know, tons of them. Most of them have never read the entire New Testament, much less the whole Word of God. And that's scary. 
The thing we're supposed to believe is God's word and don't read the word, don't study the word. Which is why I have this goal of making sure we teach the word here. Get people into the word. Get people centered on God and his truth. Because without it, we have nothing to believe. You know, we just have what I think. And what I think is worthless. What you think is worthless. What does God think? And change our mind to where, where he is. Verse 12 and 13. Hearken unto me, you stout-hearted, that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. I shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. I will go, I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. It starts out with stout-hearted. And this is the idea of somebody who pays attention and hears absently with a hard heart. All right? You know, he's saying, hearken unto me, you, you hard-hearted people that are far from righteousness. They're ignoring him. They're hard-hearted. They're ignoring what God says. And one of the things that uh, has been said, uh, Greg Gloria says it a lot, the easiest place to get a hard heart toward God is in church. Because you still, you hear God's word so often, and if you don't soften your heart to it, you can become very hard. Well, yep, heard it a hundred times. Yeah, I know the gospel. I've heard it. I've heard it thousands of times. Well, why aren't you responding? I know what God wants me to do, but you know, I know what I'm supposed to do, but don't be hard-hearted. Listen to God and respond because God says in verse 13, "I will bring my righteousness." God is going to win. He gave us the book of Revelation to tell us that He wins. The last chapter, he destroys everything and starts all over again because he wins. All through the battles in the Revelation, he wins. All through the Bible, he wins. And when he doesn't win, it's because he said he was going to let his people be judged. But he still wins because he brings them back. You know, and this is the thing about this. Job was totally devastated by Satan, and yet God won in the end because Job held on to his righteousness, and God says, here you go, and now he gives back everything. He wins. Satan thinks he has a victory. Satan puts God on the cross and kills him, and for three days thinks that he's won. I killed God. And then God comes back. I can just imagine what that must have been like. A party, a party going on among the devils. And then Jesus moves. And there goes the party. He said he was going to do it and he did it. We couldn't keep him. And you know that all the chief demons were around that body, you know, that soul trying to keep him, keep him in place. And God stands up and says, no, I'm not staying. And none of you guys are strong enough to keep me here. And leaves. You know, Death could not hold him. Satan could not hold him. He came out victorious. He will accomplish his purposes. Even if it's, even if it's far off, it's, he says it's not. He says, my salvation will not tarry. Now, from our perspective, he's tarried an awful long time. <laughs> but he says, I will not tarry. I will place salvation in Zion for Israel's glory. 
for Israel is my glory. You know, God glories in Israel. He also glories in us. We are bought with a price and he glories in us. He will joy over us with singing. Just like we talked about last night, he delights in us. Why? Who knows? He sees something we don't see. He delights in us. He joys over us. He glories in us. Kind of like a, the parent who takes pleasure in their child, knowing their child isn't perfect, but takes pleasure in their, their child's accomplishments. My, my, my son is this. My daughter is this. My, you know, they have done this. They have done this with their life. And we take joy in them, knowing that they're not perfect. God takes joy. And what's he take joy in? Us being crucified in him working out of us so that he is glorified. And he takes joy in it. He is a proud papa. <laughs> you know, and even, even to the extreme. <laughs> All right. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, help us always to recall your goodness. Lord, help us to bow our hearts to you and to live according to your word in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.